and welcome to another edition of the Screen Nerds Podcast. My name's Michael Burgett, and thanks for joining me for this rescreen episode of Rocky III, the 1982 film starring Sylvester Stallone. Uh, just got done rewatching the film and wanted to share some of my thoughts and memories of when I first saw the film, as well as some of my thoughts after this latest rewatch. Uh, so as I mentioned, this is the third installment of the Rocky film series and has Sylvester Stallone back playing the iconic Rocky Balboa. And this time around, he has his toughest challenge yet as he goes up against Clubber Lang, who's played by Mr. T. And for me, this is what this is one of, if not the favorite film of the series. Uh, I always say it's 1A and 1B with uh, this one and Rocky IV. Uh, and if you uh, go back in the archives, you can hear my thoughts on Rocky IV, both the theatrical regular version and the uh, director's cut, Rocky uh, versus Drago. Uh, and I mentioned there how much I love that film as well as Rocky III. And so those are 1A and 1B when it comes to my favorites of the series because they just really... As a kid, those were the ones that I always went back uh, and watched over and over again. And uh, I grew up on those films. Uh, they were always staples of my childhood watching them. And the first time that I saw Rocky Three was uh, a part of uh, growing up in a household that had uh, the video disc player. And I mentioned it before on the podcast uh, about the video disc player. And if you don't remember that or don't know what it is, uh, it's basically a video record player. Uh, it comes in this big, huge case, um, and uh, you would put it in the player and play the first half of the film, and then you take it out and flip it over and play the second half of the film. And uh, we had several films like that before we had VHS players. And Rocky Three was one of them, and so uh, I grew up watching that, f- watching this film, and loving it, uh, especially because there's so so much uh, other stuff that kind of connects into it, uh, not just uh, the fight uh, fight sequences, not just the music, uh, but my love for professional wrestling as well, and the connections that uh, come out of this film with Hulk Hogan and Mr. T. Uh, there was so much kind of in and around this film. Uh, that it, it along with Rocky Four were always ones that I went back to and and loved and and so I, anytime I could rewatch the film, whether it was on my parents' video disc player or eventually uh, VHS or DVD or anytime it was it would play on TV, uh, I would always sit there and watch it and because it just is what I grew up on. I mentioned love for pro wrestling. I grew up watching pro wrestling and obviously Hulk Hogan at the time uh, when I was a kid was the man as far as professional wrestling goes and uh, this film kind of helped kickstart his career in in some ways Uh, when this film came out in 1982 uh, he was still kind of on the brink of becoming the cultural touchstone that he would become and it was this film that kind of helped bring that along and so that was always something that really stuck out to me as a kid watching this film and seeing, you know, seeing him as a bad guy in the, uh, in this film, uh, knowing, you know, he would become 
uh, as a professional wrestler and everything. And then also Mr. T, uh, who I loved on the A-Team. The A-Team was one of my favorite shows as a kid. And so watching him in this movie, it was always interesting because it, uh, here he's, he's the antagonist, he's the bad guy, but yet on the A-Team, he was one of the good guys. And so, uh, lots of just nostalgia and memories with this film. And so it was interesting to go back and rewatch this film, uh, because of the fact that it was one that I loved so much as a kid and honestly still do love, you know, even this latest rewatch was a good reminder of how much I love this film. Uh, and even when, even with noticing some of the flaws and some of the inconsistencies, uh, things that could have been tightened up, things that could have been changed a little bit to, to make it even better. But even with those inconsistencies, even with those flaws, it's still a film that I really love and, uh, really enjoy and was really glad to go back and rewatch it again. And, uh, just some of the notes that I took as I was rewatching the film and going over it, it, it's interesting to see how much of a scout an expert scout that Clubber Lang is. You know, Clubber Lang is very much like watching the film was, I was reminded of the fact that he was kind of the prototype of what would be Mike Tyson. Uh, Mike Tyson and is, you know, in 82, he hadn't really broken on the scene yet. He was still kind of coming up the, the rankings uh, as a fighter. Uh, I, I don't even think that he was even uh, a pro boxer yet in 82, but Clubber Lang is almost the, the prototype or the, what would become Mike Tyson. He because Clubber Lang is the baddest man on the planet. And he was one that was no nonsense. And uh, he would knock you out and, in an instant and not care in any way, shape or form. He was just going to go out there and uh, knock you out and take you out. And very much what be like Mike Tyson would become in the mid to late eighties is, is that's the kind of vibe I get with Clubber Lang. And even with that, you know, he is showed at the beginning of the movie. He was out there scouting in every fight that Rocky was having. Clubber Lang was in the, in the crowd watching every fight so it showed that you know he wasn't just somebody that uh, wasn't going to take this seriously. He was doing the training. He was he was doing expert scouting for himself. He wasn't leaving it to anybody else to do the scouting. He was the one that was going to do the scouting. And so I, that kind of struck me right off the bat that that was something that he did. Uh, one of the things too, and this was something as a kid that just really was weird, and it just. Even in this latest rewatch, it just kind of doesn't really make a lot of sense is uh, Pauly and the way he acts at the beginning of the film. Uh, It almost feels, I mean, I get to the extent that he's jealous of Rocky in some sense, but it's just a weird way to start the film with uh, Pauly getting drunk and going to the arcade and smashing up the Rocky pinball machine and and then Rocky having to bail him out of jail. It just, it, it was weird as a kid because like the music was weird and I get, it's supposed to make you like kind of feel like you're in Pauly's head and, and he's drunk and just disorderly and all these different things. But it just it feels like with the rest of the film, it just doesn't really connect very well. And I don't know, that that to me, it almost feels like you could have just taken that part of the out of the film and it would be perfectly fine 
because really all it does is just he gets hired by Rocky and really you could have done that with any other kind of scene. It was just weird. Uh, it was weird as a kid, still weird today. Don't really understand why it was there, but Stallone, I guess, felt like it needed to be there. Um, it was. It's kind of cool in one in one sense with the beginning of the film, prior to the whole Pauly scene with uh, the Eye of the Tiger intro with Rocky fighting and showing kind of his celebrity status as being the heavyweight champ juxtaposed with Clubber Lang and his training and uh, kind of rising up the ranks as the number one contender. I loved how you had that dichotomy there of, of uh, how they were going about things. And so I thought that it almost would have been cool to just l- stuck with that as opposed to having the, the poly thing in there too. But really, I really enjoyed that dichotomy and I, I'll get into a little bit later almost why they should have had that at the end of the film too, before the, the second big fight. But thought that was cool. Obviously to me as a kid, like I mentioned about pro wrestling, uh, the exhibition, uh, the boxing pro wrestling exhibition between Rocky and Thunderlips, uh, there is precedent in real life. There was, uh, if you don't know the story in the seventies, Muhammad Ali had a big exhibition fight with uh, the great pro wrestler Antonio Inoki, and it was uh, it was a spectacle. It was uh, it was a huge show. Uh, I think it I think it kind of ended in a draw too. I don't I don't think there was a winner there either. Uh, but it was just an exhibition fight. It wasn't for charity. I don't remember. Uh, but this one, you know, between Rocky and Thunderlips was supposed to is supposed to be for charity and. Uh, Really, it just it it definitely had that pro wrestling feel to it in the 1980s sense, uh, in the early 80s. I think before WWF uh, went national and everything, because you could kind of tell the they they didn't break kayfabe. There was very much this kind of uh, they took the pro wrestling seriously there uh, to the point of not cueing Rocky in on what Thunderlips was doing or, or anything like that. But one of the things too, that really stood out to me, especially with being kayfabe was when the ring announcer introduced Thunderlips, he calls him nearly seven feet tall and 390 pounds, which is if you ever watched pro wrestling and you know, Hulk Hogan, uh, He's not nearly seven feet tall. I think he's, I think at, at his uh, biggest uh, as, as the heavyweight champion, he was six foot six and he was 303 pounds. So it was putting on the height and putting on the weight there is very much uh, uh, kayfabe and pro wrestling. Um, I did love the fact of Mickey and whenever uh, Rocky. Uh, asks Polly how much uh what do you think he eats uh, what do you think Thunderlips eats and uh, Mickey goes 202 pounds and then the ring announcer mentions that Rocky is 202 pounds uh, the look that Mickey has it's just it's Burgess Meredith's smile just cracks me up and uh it was just he he he's just a great 
actor and I love the character Mickey and really in the first couple of films he's what makes the early films to me more than anything and so even you know in this film he you know he doesn't get as much because he's he dies off in the middle of the film uh, so even moments just like that with uh, the introduction thing was just it was it was funny it was cool um, it was also interesting too that you know I mentioned about Clubber Lang being at every boxing match he was even there at the the pro wrestling exhibition uh, the boxing pro wrestling exhibition he's like even scouting there like it just shows how zeroed in and locked in that Clubber Lang is to to Rocky and wanting to fight him and get get a chance at the world title um the other thing too and you you see the the exhibition just break down and that's what's so crazy is the fact that you have this exhibition and you have thunder lips just going bonkers and uh they're throwing stuff in the ring like they would do a decade or so later when uh hogan turned heel and joins the nwo uh that scene was very reminiscent of that uh, with all the paper cups and stuff getting thrown in the ring. But you can tell that Rocky wasn't a pro wrestler because he locks the sleeper hold in at one point and gets Thunderlips down. And he doesn't keep the the sleeper hold on. He just, for some reason, he lets it go. And then he starts uh, punching on him again. And, uh, you know, if, it, if, he, if he knew anything about pro wrestling is you keep the sleeper hold on and you, you let the ref... Uh, grab the arm and see if you know it goes down three times and and get the win you know even though it is an exhibition for charity it's like you know you got you got to keep the kind of keep the sleeper hold on just to just at least try and see if you can get the the win there but the fact that too that only seventy five thousand dollars was raised at this exhibition now that was 1982 money obviously that's probably you know hundreds of thousands of dollars uh, in or even millions in today's money, but that just seems like for as bonkers as it was, and what all they did, and the fact that it just went crazy there, at, at, you know, in the middle of the exhibition, that you think they would have raised more money than seventy five thousand dollars, but that's how much they raised, and that's how much it was said. So that that just kind of was was just weird. Um, Another thing that was weird too was at the dedication ceremony for the for the uh, statue, the Rocky statue, and Clubber Lane comes out there and is calling out Rocky. Mickey says that Clubber Lane's a disgrace, and you know at the time, you know, growing up and everything, just you know, it's like Clubber Lane's a bad guy, and so you know maybe that's why he's a disgrace. But like if you just go by the basis of what you see on the film in the film there's really up to that point there's really nothing that he's done that's a disgrace like he he fights who he fights and he knocks them out and aside from that he really doesn't do anything and like it what it's not really until he you know kind of cat calls adrian that i would say that you know that's a disgrace but that's after Mickey had already called him a disgrace. So that I thought that was kind of weird, and it didn't really didn't really make a whole lot of sense. 
but like after that, it's like, okay, yeah, you know, making the, the comment and then, you know, the antics before the first fight, you know, you can say that was a disgrace, but up to that, that, that really wasn't a disgrace. It was just, you know, any kind of fighter that's, you know, rising up to be the number one contender or whatever. And so, uh, that, that, that line just kind of in the context of where the, where it was in the film didn't really necessarily make sense. It made sense later in the film, but not really at that point in the film. Also, it, there's an interesting juxtaposition that happens in this film too with the training. You have the Rocky training in the first fight. He's training uh, in the big uh, ballroom with all the people around and the band and you know selling all the merchandise and everything. And it looks very Hollywood. And it's just juxtaposed to when he actually goes to Southern California and trains for the second fight how it's very gritty and raw and real and not Hollywood, even though it's in Southern California. So it's just kind of interesting to, to look at that juxtaposition of when he's training in Philadelphia, how it looks very Hollywood, but then when he's actually in SoCal, how it looks very Philadelphia in, in just the, the mood and the tone and everything. It just, that was kind of interesting. Also, this was weird, like, and, and I guess I never really thought about it at the time. Uh, but when you look at all the other films, they always had a pre-fight press conference. There, there never was a pre-fight press conference for either of the Rocky Clubber Lang fights. You never got them in the room. You never got them answering questions or anything. And this, it's interesting. I don't know if it was. If, I don't know if it's a thing that they necessarily needed for this film. I think it would have been an interesting thing, especially given the fact that you had the pre-fight press conferences with Rocky and Drago in Rocky IV. You, know, you had that tension and everything, but you never had that with this one. And I guess maybe because of the fact that they, that Rocky and Clubber Lang were just so at each other, that you really couldn't keep them calm enough to to have a press conference, I guess. But it just seemed like it, that that's that's something that would have been an interesting dynamic to have in the film, and you just don't ever see it. Um, also, something that you never see that I think would have been pretty cool is an Apollo Apollo Creed versus Clubber Lang match, uh, a fight like to have those dynamics because you know. And you think about how, you know, Apollo Creed was kind of based upon Muhammad Ali uh, with his fighting style and everything. And like I said, Clubber Lang is the prototype of Mike Tyson. So you have to have that kind of a fight, I think, would have been pretty cool um, to to have seen. And it's unfortunate we never got that, but uh, definitely was something to have thought about. Something, too, to think about that really didn't make a whole lot of sense. And I almost kind of put it on, if I was, you know, looking at it through the lens of the film, is the people that promoted this fight, this first Clubber Lang-Rocky Balboa fight, they did a terrible job of 
keeping the fighters away from each other before the fight. Like they're coming out of the same area. And so you have the pushing and shoving and that gets Mickey hurt. Uh, And so you have that problem. You have the problem of it takes forever to get a doctor to Mickey. Like where are the doctors? Where are the paramedics? Where are the EMTs? They're like nowhere to be found. And then the fact that they just leave him in the locker room and they don't take him to the hospital. It's like that doesn't make any sense as to why you just leave him in the locker room when he still has a pulse, he's still breathing and all all this. But, you know, story-wise, you know, they wanted to have that final scene between Rocky and Mickey before Mickey dies. But you could have had that in a hospital scene too. And I just uh, that looking at that, you know, all these years later, uh, as a kid, I never really thought about it. But as an adult, it doesn't make any sense why the EMTs and the paramedics and the doctors weren't treating Mickey and you know giving him you know the best health care that they could and or at the very least getting him to the hospital and so uh, I almost kind of blame that on the uh, promoters of the first fight because they did a terrible job with all of that uh, whoever promoted the second fight did a much better job uh, but the first one they did terrible um, it it's funny too is they talk about the age thing uh, and saying Rocky's 34 and that you know having to make a comeback when you think about kind of fighters, uh, even of that era, I, I, you know, I was kind of thinking of Muhammad Ali. And I think when he fought, uh, George Foreman in, uh, rumble in the jungle, he was around 34. I think he was like 32, 33. So it wasn't like a huge age difference there, but you know, they're, they're, you know, they're saying that Ali was old then and still won the world heavyweight title. And, uh, saying Rocky is old at 34 here and something. But especially it's funny when you look at the whole age thing a few years later in Rocky Four when they're talking about retiring and all this uh, with Apollo Creed and uh, before he has the exhibition with Drago. Uh, it's just almost like a dichotomy of, Rocky wanting to retire here, but then he doesn't really want to retire in four. And yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting dynamic of how that mindset shifts, uh, in between these two films. Um, I love the relationship between Rocky and Adrian. I, I think especially in this film and in four, you really see, the love that they have for one another and sure they they argue sure they have disagreements but in the end they stand up for one another and they love each other and they they're committed to one another and i think that that's that really is a great um display that they show between each other is that uh, they know how to get the best out of each other and they're willing to do that and they want to do that. And so I love the way that they interact and, uh, she is that inspiration to him. Uh, and when he, when he is you know, second guessing himself 
Adrian's there to uh, to kind of give him that extra umph, an extra kick to uh, to get going, and really, really, I, I think is just as much as the boxing is at the heart of these films. I think the relationship between Rocky and Adrian is at the heart of these films too, and I think that's that's always important to point out. Um, I mentioned earlier about the training with Clubber Lang and the the juxtaposition, the dichotomy uh, at the beginning of the film. It's weird when you get the big training sequence uh, in SoCal with uh, Rocky and Apollo as they're training together. You don't have that cutaway to Clubber Lang. You don't see him in his training at all. You know, he mentions in an interview with a sportscaster that he, you know, he's doubling his training and he's doing this, that, and the other, but you don't actually see the training. And, uh, compared to Rocky four, when you have the cutaways back and forth between Drago and Rocky and how each, each one of them are training and how, uh, how the differences are, it's weird how you don't see the training here with Clubber Lang. And I think it would have been cool to have seen how he was training because, you know, we saw how he trained as he was on the ascent to the world heavyweight title um, to, you know, it would have been interesting to see him as the champ training for this fight. And, uh, but I love the, the training montage with, with Rocky and Apollo. It definitely fits this film. Um, I don't know if I like it better than uh, the training sequence uh, in Rocky IV. Um, I almost feel like that one, with the dueling training with Drago and Rocky, I feel like that one is just a little bit better. Um, But this one is still iconic, just with... uh, everything going on with the film and uh, and still you've got uh eye the tiger blaring as the training is going on so that makes it good too um i i love one of the lines that i always quote from this film uh from rocky three is right before the second fight and one of the reporters is talking to clever lang and asking him if he has any predictions for the fight uh, and he just stares in the camera and yells pain uh, i always anytime someone asks for a prediction for anything i just always quote that line of clever langs and just say pain like, you know who's gonna win this game or who's gonna win that and i just you know i always just quote that line and because it's just funny that that's you know that's the prediction that clever lang had for the fight and um, also that it's cool that they picked, uh, Madison Square Garden, which has the nickname of the world's most famous arena, uh, that that's the scene for this fight. And it's almost fitting, uh, that, you know, you have two massive cha- uh, championship fighters, uh, fighting in, in MSG, uh, Madison Square Garden, so it was very cool to, because I'd forgotten that that's where uh, the fight was for the the second go around. I th- I don't even think that they even mention where the first fight was, um, but they definitely made it a point to to show off 
that they're in Madison Square Garden for the second fight and uh, show the importance and show, you know, really just, you know, this is a big time fight. And definitely out of all the fights that there are in the Rocky series, this one is the most intense. Uh, it is just bell to bell, just anger, intensity, uh, just the fighting is just frenzied. Uh, and it makes sense when you have a fighter like Clever Lang, who is a power fighter. He's a, and he's emotional power fighter. Uh, Drago is power, but he's more of the silent kind, the, the emotionless kind. Uh, and I mentioned Apollo is very much in the Muhammad, Muhammad Ali mold, but Clubber Lang is very much power intense, uh, and that really makes for an intense fight. And I think that it really fits. Uh, and that's why probably out of all the fights in the Rocky series, this one is probably my favorite fight. And I love Drago in, in that fight in Rocky Four, But I just feel like this one is just, uh, it brings out the intensity of Rocky and shows that he can be intense and he can uh, go toe-to-toe with, with a fighter like Clubber Lang. And, and, and we see that, uh, especially in the second fight. And, and it's interesting, too, uh, because, you know, especially in the first two films, they make a point that, you know, Rocky's a lefty and, you know, Apollo Creed's a righty and lefties aren't, you know, you don't see too many lefties in the heavyweight division. Uh, but I didn't notice until this latest rewatch that Clubber Lang is essentially a lefty. And so you have two lefties fighting each other and that really makes for an interesting fight too because you don't necessarily uh, too often see two lefties going at it, but you get that here. Uh, in this film. And so I thought that that was interesting. Also, uh, you get the version of the rope-a-dope, which is kind of how, uh, Rocky is kind of laying back, uh, a bit making clever Lang, uh, expend a lot of energy very much in the mold of, uh, Muhammad Ali and George Foreman, uh, mentioned that fight, uh, being reminded of that, uh, fight after watching, uh, the film Big George Foreman, uh, seeing a version of Rope-A-Dope here with Balboa being uh, Ali and Clever Lang being George Foreman. Uh, but this one is a little more intense with the uh, Rope-A-Dope. He, Clever's still nailing uh, Rocky with every punch and of his fiber and his being, uh, but Rocky is almost mad and angry uh, as opposed to like Ali who would just be kind of jokey and uh, not as intense as you can have with, in, as in this fight. Uh, but there was a version of that. And like I said, the ending, obviously Rocky wins and you have the big celebration and then you have the, uh, uh, the end sequence with the uh, exhibition just between Rocky and, uh, in Apollo. And that was one thing that in the director's cut of Rocky four, I hate that they cut that out, uh, of, of that encounter because the theatrical version has the, you know, shows, you know, what happened, 
uh, with between the two of them. And uh, so it almost feels like that that kind of gets lost after when you watch the director's cut of four after watching this version, it just, it's, uh, it's interesting to, to go back and see this again and know that, you know, in the director's cut of four, you don't really know what happens at this part. But, um, like I said, overall, I love this film. I loved rewatching this film. It's still, one A or one B with Rocky four as my favorites of the series. And like I said, a lot of good stuff here. There's some stuff that, you know, on a rewatch and reflection, uh, kind of head scratching, but doesn't take away from the fact that, uh, for me, it's one of my favorite films. It's a beloved film and really enjoyed going back and rewatching it again. So that's my thoughts on Rocky Three. I'd love to hear your thoughts on Rocky Three, or any film that you've been checking out of late. You can let me know your thoughts anytime by email, ScreenNerdsPodcast at gmail.com. You can always find us on Twitter, at ScreenNerdsPod, and tweet your thoughts there. You can also find us on Facebook. Just search out ScreenNerdsPodcast on Facebook, like the page, and share your thoughts there. And if you get an opportunity, please rate and review and subscribe to the podcast, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, Good Pods, CastBox, Amazon Music, wherever it is that you get your podcast. If you would, please rate and review and subscribe to the podcast. Leave a written review. Hopefully leave a five-star review. Um, share the podcast. Just help get the word out. would really appreciate it. So again, thanks for joining me for this rescreen episode. My name is Michael Burgett, and we will catch you on the next episode. <laughs>